to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Through the miracle of the Internet, We now have Civil War history available through websites, blogs, podcasts, video games, and other electronic formats, which are great, but some of us would still rather hold a signed first edition book in our hands than read its contents on a Kindle. And there remains no substitute for the experience of seeing, in person, an original document written by Abraham Lincoln. If you're with me on this, Your bucket list should include a visit to the legendary Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago. We'll talk with owner Daniel R. Weinberg tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you once again from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system, not subservient to the UNC system, however, and not speaking for the UNC system or the campus or anybody else, speaking only for myself, as I always do, and as my guest will likewise do tonight here on Civil War Talk Radio. It is a February evening, a little bit chilly, but not too bad for North Carolina. We have not had any kind of cold this winter like they had in Chicago, as our guest will tell us in a few moments. Uh, But the big news on campus uh, right now, this week, as of 
3 o'clock this afternoon is that the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences is leaving us. He's going to become the president at Gardner-Webb University. Uh, the College of Arts and Sciences is the largest one on campus. In fact, it's probably larger than uh, than Gardner-Webb University all put together. It's, Gardner-Webb is a small private school in Western North Carolina. It's uh, it's a Division One school, but not uh, not an FBS school. It's FCS for uh, our listeners in Europe. That's sort of like the Premiership versus the Championship. The uh, teams at the bottom of the the FBS, big schools like East Carolina, sometimes play teams at the top of the FCS, like Gardner-Webb, and in fact, they are going to play football this fall. Uh, And the FBS team is supposed to win, but ECU, eh, we've lost a few of those in a row, so we don't know. Uh, But more than football, uh, the, the talk around the building now is who will replace our dean, who will become the interim dean, uh, assuming he, he, leaves soon uh, well they, they, he's going to leave in the summer but they, they won't be able to finish the search by then so we're all waiting with bated breath to find out who will be in charge of the college that includes our department of history there are several associate deans any one of whom might be picked I mentioned one a few weeks ago the dean for planning uh, I think I pointed out he counts everything and understands nothing it would be extremely problematic if he were to become the interim dean of the college. I think half the department chairs would resign. If I had a post to resign, I would give it up, uh, which doesn't mean they won't choose him. We'll just have to see. There are a couple other associate deans. Uh, uh, the undergrad studies dean is a just really nice person, maybe too nice. We'll see. The dean for research, very effective. Maybe that'll be the choice. We don't know what'll happen. So, um, while speaking of things on campus, let me also send out a greeting to listeners from History 3900, Introduction to Public History, who may be seeking extra credit for listening tonight and finding out another way uh, from tonight's guest that you can make a living doing history outside of the academy, uh, in this case by writing, reading, collecting, relating to Abraham Lincoln, uh, and we'll talk more about that later, certainly. Speaking of talking, I will be talking publicly in a few venues over the next couple months if you're in the area want to hear. One of them is online, actually, so everybody can, can pay attention to this if they had a mind to. I am agreed to appear on a video podcast, sort of like this show, but with, with pictures, so I have to get my hair cut for this one. Uh, it was called Breaking Free with Marilyn Shannon, uh, and on March 11th, sometime in the afternoon, I will be doing uh, an, an hour interview with her. Well, I'll, I will be in the other seat. I'll be answering the questions about uh, things I've written about Lincoln and the Civil War, and uh, the host of the show appears to be uh, like a life coach, uh, if you need coaching in your life for whatever reason, um, this is the kind of person you go to. I'm fairly certain that this is not a cult organization. It's not a cover for some secret you know, radical group or white supremacist group or something. It would be embarrassing to participate in their podcast. I don't think they're insane, uh, but I guess we'll find out on March 11th when, when I talk with them. Uh, a group that I know is not insane is the Civil War Roundtable of Petersburg, Virginia. I'll be 
their guest on April 4th talking about Abraham Lincoln. And likewise, the Civil War Roundtable in Raleigh, North Carolina will have me on May 13. So a couple places, uh, if you're in the area, stop by. I'd be happy to meet with you. The Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College is one more such place, June 14 through the 19th this year. Go to gettysburg.edu slash CWI, find out about that. And as always, we're looking to fill up the bus uh, to this hallowed ground, May 18 through 26, stephenambrosetours.com. Come along and join us. If you can't do any of those things, you can always listen to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, for the rest of the month, we've got... Uh, Two people returning to the show from from past times. They've written new books in the meantime. Uh, the first next week will be Caroline Janey, who has edited a volume of essays on Petersburg to Appomattox, the end of the war in Virginia. And the following week, Elizabeth Leonard, who has a book about uh, United States colored troops, uh, a particular unit of them. Uh, who, and others who are involved with them. The book is called Slaves, Slaveholders, and the Kentucky Community's Struggle Toward Freedom. The title doesn't really give make the USCT connection as clear as it might, but uh, there, that's why the book is on this show. Then we've got spring break. Everybody kick back, get a drink with a little umbrella in it for a week. And we'll be back on March 13th. Ashley Whitehead-Lusky, Associate Assistant Director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg, will be with us. And to round out the month of March, Shauna Devine, uh, a book called Learning from the Wounded about uh, medicine in the Civil War. I saw a presentation here on campus on Monday about Civil War medicine that did not cause me to go lightheaded and, and, and fall over, which I do very easily when dealing with graphic physical uh, descriptions. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to read Professor Devine's book and talk with her uh, without passing out. And finally, March 27th, Jason Phillips has a very interesting new concept for a book. It's called Looming Civil War, How 19th Century Americans Imagined the Future. It's a book about what the Civil War looked like to people in America before it took place, what they thought was going to happen. So lots of good stuff coming up. Please join us for all of it. And especially join us for the rest of the evening tonight. We've got Dan Weinberg here, who is the owner of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. He's also the co-author, I should note, of Lincoln's Assassins, Their Trial and Execution. But it's the bookshop that, uh, in particular, I want to discuss with him tonight. Just to give you, if you've never been there, um, uh, you have to go. It was... Established in 1938 by Ralph Newman, a name familiar to Civil War readers. Uh, it is the place where the Civil War Roundtable movement got started. Uh, Ralph Newman helped found that. And uh, in 1971, Dan Weinberg became partner in the, the shop. Uh, I believe I have the details right. Uh, he became the, the full owner in 1984 and has been there since. Um, Dan, welcome to the show. Do I have those details right? So far, so good, Jerry. Thank you. It's good to be well, here. Well, good. It is good to have you back. 1971, you were partners with Ralph Newman. I want to ask, you know, did, did you ever meet Lincoln himself? Um, uh, but the, you're not that old. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you there. Uh, well, you know, uh, to me, Lincoln still lives, so I'm living with him right now. <laughs> Well, the number one question... Coattails for dear life as well. 
Well, that's um, – let me say a quick personal thing before asking you uh, more about the, the, the shop and how things are going now, which is my younger daughter, Maria, has just moved into your neighborhood. She's in the 600 block of West, West Division. Wow. Uh, she's close so She's, she's. I think she's closer to your your shop than she is to her L stop, actually. Uh, <laughs> and I, I dropped her off there in January and haven't been back to visit yet. But when I do, I'll be able to walk over to your place and uh, and say hello. The weather in Chicago has been a national story. Everybody's been following it. We know how how in- bizarrely, incredibly cold it was. And I I lived there in the 1980s, and it never got to the temperatures you experienced. Uh, but that, I, I was horrified to read about the consequences it had for, for you guys. Can you tell us what uh, what's going on at the shop? Well, we are physically closed at the moment because we did have uh, some water breaks above us in one of the units above us. And so about a quarter of our shop got underwater. We did not lose much if any stock. We were very, very lucky. Thank goodness. Oh, thank but goodness. We had to take down shelving, which means taking down books and finding a place, taking the shelving down, and uh, because they were taking the walls down in some of the areas, and they're rebuilding them and carpets and all that, water damages is all there is to it. But we'll, we'll be back. Strangely enough, Jerry, this is my fifth flood in 48 years of being in business in three different locations. And you just moved to this location. Near, t- tell us where your address is right right now, so people it's can. It's eight twenty four West Superior, just on the near north side, northwest side, near Chicago and Halstead, if people know that. So we're very close to the downtown area, just you know, five minutes by a cab. And and you were, uh, I haven't seen this new location. You were previously on Chicago Avenue, I believe. Just uh, a half mile west, east of us, really. And mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's not too far from where we were, just the other side of the Chicago River. When did you move? It's been two and a half, almost three years now, actually. Okay. So, so uh, uh, we've been here already a while. Wow. And and uh, people can but, see on your your website and on the uh, on your Facebook page some of the, the photos of the the flood recovery that you're undergoing. But yes. it, you you're, you're still. You said you didn't lose any any stock. No precious documents were were lost in the flood. No, no, none. Thankfully, that that just is just our is, connections to some of our precious clients. We didn't who can't come in. <laughs> well, uh, now, if one wants to visit the shop, is it open just regular hours? People stroll in, or do you prefer? Does it work by appointment? What's what's your current setup there? Well, of each on Mondays we're really close, so we can do work. Although by appointment, if someone wants to come in, but Tuesday through Saturday we're here. Uh, well, let's see, nine, uh, ten to six on Tuesday through Friday, and then ten to four on Saturday, and thankfully closed on Sunday. Very good. The and we're uh, an open shop, so people can just come over if they like. Now you know it's called bookshop, but but books are just part of what you carry and uh, it, I think the last time you were on the show I described it in the intro as part bookstore, part museum uh, part antique store uh, how would you characterize well, the, the place? Uh, actually it's, it's a bit of each is what you're saying uh, we are a bookshop and I always consider myself a book dealer first and foremost but 
uh, as time went on and things came through my hands and through the portal that uh, I had to learn and know of other historical artifacts such as autographs and manuscripts and documents, uh, but also photography and broadsides, ephemera of all sort, prints. Uh, so we have a wide range of historical artifacts that come through here, and we look like a museum, uh, except you can go away with the exhibits for a price. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. I was talking to a, a, a student recently about buying and selling historical artifacts, and he said he was an archaeology major, and in, in archaeology it's not acceptable to buy and sell things. Of course, frequently they're talking about things like human remains, which obviously uh, cannot ethically be bought and sold but in in history it, it's not uncommon for people to collect mementos of the past and and uh, that it's a whole industry really it is an industry and they're available and in multiples many of them although each is somewhat unique but mm-hmm. uh i think that anyone who actually plunks money down to buy a, a lincoln letter or a Washington signed document, uh, is going to take care of it. They would be the uh, curator now for the next generation. So uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. These things need homes, good homes, and homes actually that use them. And that's mm-hmm. what I like about collectors, that they're embedded in their communities. And it might be the only time that kids, for instance, mm-hmm. can come over and see in a library or an historical society something the collector has put in and the first time they can view them up close and maybe even handle them. So that's that's what the collector can do. Well, we're going to talk more about collectors, what they do, and also what you've got uh, in the shop these days. We're going to take a short break first and come back. We're talking tonight with Dan Weinberg. He's the owner of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dan Weinberg. He's the owner of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago, Illinois. It is one of the oldest... uh, well, he just nothing to do with it. It is the the central salon, as it were, of of uh, Civil War uh, book writing and reading and purchasing in the United States. There, there's really no place like it. And if you've never been there, you definitely want to make time to go visit uh, this remarkable institution. Uh, so, Dan, Mary, what, we're actually uh, 85 years old because Ralph began it in eight, 1933. And okay. then Carl Sandburg started to come in and kind of turned him toward the dark side, as I sometimes say, with <laughs> Lincoln and Civil War studies. And in '38, uh, he began really specializing it and then turned the name to Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in 40, 41, right in that area. Uh, so uh, really, we're 85, we feel we're 85 years old specializing as we do. Well, and and there is again, you know, there's just nothing like it. It's it's uh, just an incredible place to visit. Uh, the so so what uh, what's new in the shop these days? I you have a, a there's nothing new. Catalog. It's all old, Jerry. <laughs> all right, you got me. Uh, what what's new to to viewers who come in? Has any? How often does new stuff come in? Let me put it that way. In terms of of artifacts, of documents, of artwork. Uh, do you see new things every day? Do they come in once a month? How does that work? Well, not every day, but uh, strangely enough, I mean, I, I use, I'm always asked, uh, what's new? Uh, and right. I always say that it's old, but uh, <laughs> what is new in the Lincoln world that we've not seen? And do things still come up? They do. There's, I don't know if we're ever going to find huge, uh, a Gettysburg address, another one, mm-hmm. or a letter or correspondence that's going to change history. But little things do come up that certainly excite uh, the collector in me and the uh, historian in me. So there's always something coming up like that. For instance, uh, in in the last few years, strangely, Jerry, a number of things have come up that I was surprised to see. Uh, As an example, Mm -hmm. land grants were not signed by presidents after... Andrew Jackson's first term. From the second term on, there were clerks. He had his son, actually, uh, his, his uh, 
his son do it for him, as did Van Buren sign for him. And after that, it was just a clerk or a secretary who signed the names. But all of a sudden, one came up with Abraham Lincoln. And the fascinating thing, not only was it a land grant signed by Lincoln, that has always been signed by Stoddard, one of the secretaries, mm-hmm. but uh, this one was actually signed by him personally on January 2nd of 1863. And that's a big date, the day after the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. And interestingly, he was giving land to the daughter-in-law of a Democrat uh, who had Senator King, who had been appointed by Lincoln, was one of three people in the in '62 to help uh, de-slave, I suppose, Washington D.C. And I think he was so happy with what he did and that he joined Lincoln in doing this that he was giving something to his daughter-in-law and that was a land grant. So there's something that I'd never seen before. Oh, that's and as well, uh, I'm a big Black Hawk War collector. I once had his first mm-hmm. elective signature, uh, A. Lincoln Captain, back in Beardstown in 1832. And uh, you, know, you know what he said of that. Of all the success I've had, that's the one that's given me the most pleasure. So, that's right. Uh, that gives me the most pleasure, having that uh, signature that gave him the pleasure. And I've just gotten a another signed, not uh, not discharge, as many of them are, but really the last extant Black Hawk War piece signed by Lincoln in public domain. Of the 24 that are out there, they're all in institutions, and all of a sudden this thing came up on the day in January of 1833 that he got his pay. And it's really an affidavit I won't go into all of it right now, but it's a fascinating mm-hmm. piece of an affidavit for, for one of his privates in, the, in his company. Uh, and there's a very early and very unusual signature. I had learned when I first came in, as maybe you did when you went to Lincoln Museum mm-hmm. uh, all those years ago, that you know Lincoln's three stages of the signature, how it goes up in three steps and all of that, and I've learned over the years that there is a variance in his signature from dates, 30s or the 1840s, uh, different in the 50s and 60s, although he sometimes harkened back to the 40s in his signature. So uh, it was always interesting to me to see how his new signatures form, and you see something totally different that you've not seen before. So... so you can date documents uh, at least roughly by the, the the design of the signature, the way it's evolved over time, um, which brings up a question that, that I'm sure you get asked all the time, and I think I asked you last time you, you were on the show. Uh, what about people forging Lincoln's signature? Do you ever get people bringing those in? Well, I have a private collection of close <laughs> to 70 Lincoln forgeries which I've taken off the market. I give people fifty, a hundred dollars, depending upon what it is, and take mm-hmm. it off the market. And eventually, uh, it can be used for research. And I'll donate it to some Lincoln institution. Don't know where yet, uh, mm-hmm. where it'll be permanently off the market. Yes, they still come up, and in fact, there are still people I think trying today. 
So Lincoln is always in the forefront of forgeries, and one has to be careful all the time. So as not to encourage listeners to practice this themselves, I, I won't repeat the value in your current catalog of an authentic Lincoln signature, but I can see why somebody might think this would be easy money if they could fool someone. Uh, but Yes, it, it happens from, some... uh, from even Lincoln's grandson, who you know also did That's, incredible yeah. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. He, yes, Jack, Jack uh, uh, Lincoln signed very close to his grandfather, and uh, uh, that, that had he lived longer, there'd probably probably be a lot more of those signatures exactly. floating around. Exactly. Uh, so, let me ask: When you, what's a normal day like? This is kind of a question that that people outside of museums often wonder. They think, "What do you do in a museum? You dust off the bust of Lincoln, sit down and." read a book for six hours, uh, maybe talk to a group of school kids. And, of course, the answer for anyone in, in museums is there's something new every day, hopefully not a burst pipe that you have to deal with, but it's always something. Uh, yeah. So if there were a typical day for you, what would what would it be like? Well, just as you say, they're uh, all untypical, uh, but it, it, it revolves around people coming in who one has to give and why I want to give time to, and because if they're going to come here and, and take the time to be here, I want to give them an experience that they'll enjoy and try to explain to them some of the things that are there and, uh, and why they're important. Uh, then there are always calls coming in, in for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, I have this in my, from my aunt's uh, attic, and I don't know if it's real or not, but uh, does it have any value? Uh, or someone who says, I have a new photograph of Lincoln, and invariably it turns out not to be, but they're not always uh, receptive to my saying that. Um, And then, of course, there's describing new acquisitions that come in, putting together lists and catalogs, and, of course, we do something that, uh, you know, for 15 years... Uh, we've done something called, used to be called virtual book signing, but now it's called mm-hmm. Author's Voice. And it's uh, and in the Author's Voice, we have a show called A House Divided. And we do our interviews just like you're doing this, except mm-hmm. it's on the Internet. And people can watch it live and actually ask questions while we're live. So we're getting ready for the next author to come in and, and put a show together. So there are all sorts of things being done. Well, let me stay in author's voice for a minute because that's a, a great resource. Um, uh, you know, we're on the internet too. You and I, right now, uh, in a sense, author's voice and Civil War talk radio are in bitter competition for the Civil War listener and viewer. Uh, we don't have video uh, here as you do, but in fact, uh, Bjorn Skaptesen, uh, is is he still lining up guests? Do I have the right person? Uh, yes, exactly. Yes, uh, yeah, he he and I, I mean, co- cooperate. He will email me with who you're having on uh, or suggest someone, and I'll uh, do the same for him occasionally. Uh, in fact, he's been on the show here. Uh, so, I, it, it, listeners, if you haven't watched Author's Voice, uh, it is a great way to see really the same thing we're doing here uh, with the added advantage that you can call in here at Civil War Talk Radio. We don't uh, take callers just because we never have, and uh, I'd rather give the time to the guest. But uh, if you go to Author's Voice, you can also get uh, an autographed book by the author. Is that not correct? 
That's correct. People don't call in. They really uh, type in on, on the screen mm. and send mm-hmm. it in like an email, and then we'll uh, ask the author to look into the camera and answer the question, and uh, it's a lot of fun to do that. No, it's, it's, but, it's uh, a great... We did the same thing an hour, and I don't think we're in competition. I think that oh, no, uh, several people are uh, do, probably doing both of us. We do different I would things. So. We have many of the same people sometimes, but we each ask different and varied questions, and that's what's the nice part about seeing any author or historian in, ver- in various venues, that you'll mm-hmm. get different sides of them. Uh, and I, I know you do, and I try the same thing, to not ask the exact same thing everyone else is going to do and give a different content experience for the listener. Exactly. And listeners, if you want to see this, go to uh, the website, a Lincoln Bookshop, all one word, dot com, and there's a link there to Author's Voice, right, Dan? Yes, correct. So that's where you want to and go. And we also Bookshop. have our past, uh, many of our past shows on YouTube. So if one goes to YouTube and goes to the Author's Voice channel, uh, you'll see them, uh, many of them listed right there, and you can sit back and, and watch with a beer. Sounds good. Or wine. Now, a, <laughs> a question I frequently ask uh, guests on this show that is who you'd like to meet if you could go back in time to the Civil War, but... Uh, I, I'm guessing most of us would say, well, Lincoln would be the first choice. But let me vary that for you, Dan, and ask you a different question. Which Lincoln collector would you like to be able to go back to meet? Of those, there Lincoln collectors are not known to the general public, uh, but you know that there are some some famous ones within the field uh, from yeah. the, the 20th century. Is there any one person in the field of Lincoln collecting? that you never got to meet that you'd like to go back and talk with? Well, that I didn't get a chance to meet. They would have been, you know, closer to Lincoln's time, maybe. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I have a piece right now, strangely enough, that mm-hmm. is very unusual. You know, the, you know the autograph books of the day. It was a big time for autograph collecting. You've seen innumerable right. autograph books. But then mm-hmm. you might see Lincoln in the cabinet and the... And the Congress and the Senate, page after page after page after page. But there's a collector who, who was a clerk from one of the Illinois regiments, and he became a clerk because he was educated. And he was at headquarters in various areas. And he took two large sheets of paper and began collecting all on those sheets. So he has Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, uh, Hardy, Hooker, some McPherson, <laughs> uh, strangely enough, because uh, he died soon, and uh, innumerable other generals, major generals and governors, and all of them are up on the recto side of two large sheets. Now, there's a collector I'd love to have met because I would like to have seen how, how he did that, what got him started. Why did he do it like this and not an autograph book like 99.9% of all other collectors? And he was in the right spot to do this at headquarters where all these people mm-hmm. came through. So there's a collector nobody knows about that I just learned of that I'd love to have met to see how he'd have done that because everyone was a collector of one way or another back there, whether you were mm-hmm. doing what he was doing or you were uh, at the 
hanging of the Lincoln conspirators and you were taking a piece of rope off the scaffold. Well, just what an interesting piece that would be to have uh, to, to all those autographs uh, and as you say to talk to the person who collected them uh, just an awesome because uh, every collector item. was different and uh, mm-hmm. you know from Barton and the big five of course and uh, you know also uh, two that I would have liked to have talked about John Kennedy and Alexander Bliss who put together that wonderful book of facsimiles of our country's authors called um, Autograph Leaves of Our Country's Authors. You've seen that book. Mm-hmm. And it was responsible for the last two Gettysburg Addresses because uh, Bliss went over to get that from uh, Lincoln, and he came back, and Kennedy said, no, you had to have have him sign it, date it, and title it. So I went back, trudged back, Got and it. that's the fifth one that, that he did, and the one we always use is, that's the one that's now in the White House. And so here are two guys who collected Longfellow, Emerson, Francis Scott Key, et cetera, et cetera, every one of the day, minor and major poets and writers. And it was interesting what they said in the introduction about these they're collecting. They said that, uh, I'm going to quote here, the whole will be valued not only for the literary merit of the collection, but still more for the graphic picture it presents of the manual workmanship of our country's authors. And this was done for the uh, 1864 Baltimore Sanitary Fair. And right. you see this book come up here and there. It's, uh, and I, there, there are a couple of collectors that I would have loved to have met and seen how they went out to everyone, Whitman and Stowe and Edgar mm-hmm. Allan Poe. And, uh, and what do they ask for and how do they collect all of these? And where they all went, they all went to the winds. They were going to be selling not only the book, but the individual letters. And I don't think they did very well. Certainly, Gettysburg mm. Address didn't sell. And mm-hmm. where they all went, I'm not sure. So we just have the, the facsimile editions today, but the, the original ones vanished with the wind. We're mm-hmm. going to vanish for a moment. We're going to take another short break and come back, talk with our guest, Dan Weinberg, owner of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dan Weinberg, the owner and proprietor of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago, Illinois. It is an institution in the world of Civil War scholarship, a place where you can find out-of-print books, but also manuscripts, uh, artwork, occasional uh, ephemera, printed materials, all kinds of things from the 19th century, as well as the most recent books being published. You can learn about what's happening at the shop from its Facebook page, its web page, you can see authors interviewed at Authors Voice, a, uh, a webcast uh, similar to this podcast, but visual. And you can uh, see the same people often who appear here on Civil War Talk Radio will also be on Authors Voice talking about their books. Uh, so lots going on at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, including, as we said in the first segment, a temporary disaster with uh, burst pipes in this absurdly cold winter of uh, 2019 uh, but by the time most of you download and listen to this the store will be 100% back open so we're not going to talk about that anymore uh, your mouth Dan, and ears there we go Dan the last thing uh, you, you were talking about uh, entering the Gettysburg address and the, the, the bliss copy and the, uh, the copies uh, and, and you said you get people who bring in a Lincoln photograph, uh, what they think is a, a new Lincoln photograph. I wanted to ask, how recently was the last time somebody brought in one of the uh, parchment Gettysburg Address reproductions that had been in their family for 100 years uh, exactly. in the hope that it was the original? How, how often does that happen? Uh, way too often. And I try to tell people, even over the phone, I say this is like a faux parchment, a crinkly paper, right. brown. And they say, yes. And I say, well, that's not it, because that paper was not stamped back then. And sometimes they say, okay, thank you for letting me know. And other times I right. say, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. I've got to come in. I remember one guy from St. Louis who just wouldn't believe me. He just came all the way up here from St. Louis, drove to get mm. to me and walked in and I guess I was a little cruel because he, he took it out of his pocket and I immediately saw what it was. I knew what it was. I said, nope. nope. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have to go back to St. Louis. But it comes so frequently because they still make them. They're still yeah. out there in, in tourist places. It's not only the Gettysburg Address, it's a slave reward poster or the, the Declaration of Independence and all sorts of things that they have for tourists. But, so people, uh, the, but the worst is really when people come in with photographs that 
they are, and this just happened this past week. Someone mm. sent in a photograph that was obviously not Lincoln, and they, they just, I don't think they're going to believe me, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. Then again, there are some, I just recently had someone come in, there was, there was talk years ago of Lincoln on a horse, mm. and a photograph of that, and it disappeared. And Lloyd Ostendorf, the photographic oh, yeah. historian, had said mm-hmm. that he had seen it, and then he couldn't get it because they disappeared with it. Then it recently showed up, and maybe it's disappeared again on me. But uh, I think it is, except that the horse moved, and Lincoln moved with it, and actually his face a little bit, too, so he's a little blurry. Mm. But it seems to me that it's him. So I think there's a new one out there that hopefully will surface again soon, but not useful. Because if it's it's actually an ambrotype, and you could make Mm -hmm. a photograph from it, but in this case, it would look like mud. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't have the value because of that, but it would have value if we could all say that it is Lincoln on that horse. So it it goes both ways sometimes, but certainly the, the... Anyone who was tall and had a beard, and and sometimes they try to do scientific morphing of a of a photograph to Lincoln or Lincoln to this photograph, and it's just crazy. And technology has changed things where they can now look more closely at photographs than ever before, and and you know expand them to where we can see someone in a crowd who might be Lincoln that we might not have recognized in the past. Uh, so so maybe we will find another photograph. We might, but, you know, people. Lincoln was around people all the time. And mm-hmm. it wasn't very regular that he'd be alone and find a photographic place and they would take it and then what happens with it, we don't know. Um, but people were around and said, yeah, Lincoln went for a photograph here. I saw him going there. So we don't know of any others really. There's one mm-hmm. supposedly in Baltimore when he was changing trains. And this one with the horse is another one. But um, it's, I think, going to be, I, I think it's going to be impossible that a new Lincoln photograph is really going to come that we don't know of. Because people mm-hmm. saw him, knew what he was doing most of the time. And early on, he wasn't just taking photographs. It would cost money. And what was he doing that for? And when he was president, they knew what he was doing every day. Right, right. So if he had gone to a photographic gallery, it would have been noted. Mm -hmm. Let me change topics and ask, um, as as politely as I can phrase it, what the heck is going on in Springfield? uh, Yikes. With the the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Tell our listeners, what's your take on things there? Well... It's, I don't know what to take from it. I don't think it was handled very well. I don't understand how the foundation was able to take in, allegedly, $40 million and only pay off $11 million from the $23 million from the taper collection. Where did it all go? And why is all the money that comes from the, the bookshop and the museum and the gate and also the sandwich place that's there. Why does that all go to the foundation and not stay with the museum? Who could use it? And, of course, the big problem is that hat, which they paid $6.5 million for. I don't, I don't think that was an 
out, outlandish price to to pay for it. I think for an American icon like that, but mm-hmm. it just isn't because some of us know the whole story of that hat, and uh, it, it became the hat by being put on the Freedom Train just before the bicentennial. In, in the 1970s, it was 74, I think, is when the Freedom Train went around the country, and the Smithsonian wouldn't give their hat to be put on a train and trundled around the country, <laughs> that icon. Uh, mm-hmm. So instead, they found one that was here in Illinois, uh, someone we know who owned it, Jim Hickey, and mm-hmm. it got on the train and came back as the Lincoln hat. And after that, it made its way to Louise, who I don't think knew anything about the background of it, really, uh, but it was buying something she thought was okay. But I now the, the FBI has looked into it, historians have looked into it, and we all say that they need to back off from that claim. So if they're asking for money and they've paid that for that hat, then we say, why are we giving more money? So, so just for problem. say for listeners who haven't been following it as as closely as you and I have, Dan, the uh, the, the museum in in Springfield borrowed a lot of money to buy a, a collection of remarkable items from uh, collector Louise Taper back when the museum opened over a decade ago, and uh, the bills are coming due. They need to pay this money back, and they're having trouble raising it. And as you just pointed out. The, the centerpiece artifact they bought, the Lincoln Stovepipe hat, is in a great deal of question. And uh, what, what's really distressing to many of us, of course, is the notion uh, that that museum will sell some of its collection to try to raise the money it needs to pay off its debts. And, and what they have they, to sell, Jerry, would have to be the big items. They're not going to be able to sell 500 little things and get $9.7 million. They're going to have to sell off a couple of the really large items. The hat is not going to make it anymore, but Mm -hmm. maybe the blood-stained collar that they have, uh, maybe the Emancipation uh, Proclamation um, briefcase that uh, Lincoln had that in and went to the soldiers' home back and forth Mm -hmm. from the executive mansion and used, and the the stained gloves from Ford's Theater. That's going to be very embarrassing. And, and well, I, I, let me go a step to. further. I, I was my students and I in introduction to public history were just reading the uh, American Alliance of Museums Code of Ethics, which says it's unethical to sell your collection, except to buy other things, except to support the collection. Uh, to sell it to raise operating money, or in this case, debt money, is is not an ethical practice. So they're they're well, really it might be the only way that they can exist. What's going to happen, is, and they might just go down otherwise. Well, so it, it, they may well, just sorry, be forced I think our friend into Harold Holtz, doing that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Harold said uh, the, the walls exist to protect the collection. The collection doesn't exist for the walls. So uh, uh, you, you can't sell the collection to save the building. Um, but for them to go down would be a, a unspeakable uh, cultural calamity. So, well, um, let me return. We just have a few minutes left, and while we're on cheerful topics, when you were last on the show eight years ago, and maybe you were having a bad day, but you at that time predicted that 
printed books were were coming to an end, that that electronic media would replace them. Uh, I don't know if I was predicting that. that. I was certainly worried. Well, it, it's eight it years later. Do, about. do you feel better? Uh, I do. I think the Kindle, for instance, which has a place. You know, if yes. I'm going to go on a vacation somewhere, I don't want to take uh, 20 books. Sure. I'd rather take the Kindle and just read and then relax and enjoy. But like right. you and like most of our listeners, we like the printed word, holding and smelling a book. Um, and it seems that it's really uh, still here with us. And the trade, for instance, in print books that publishers put out, you know, we had a lot of stores go down when yes. the Kindle first came out. But now they've made a comeback, and they've come up. And so I think the printed book still is going to be with us for some time. Well, I, I'm I hope that prediction is more on. <laughs> I, I sure hope so. I, 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 I remember being taken aback by your, your gloominess about the, the prospects for things at that time. And, well, eight years, uh, we were, eight years ago, we were gloomy about that, the entire train. Yeah. I guess I was reflecting mm-hmm. that. I wasn't alone. And mm-hmm. we were all gnashing our teeth and worried about the future uh, of books themselves. But uh, it seems that people do like them, and even uh, the young'uns like it, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a bad thing. So if we can keep, keep the youngsters happy with books, they'll, they'll devolve into adults that will collect them and put them on shelves and enjoy them. Well, one certainly hopes so. I've been trying to, periodically, I look at the bookshelves at home, at the office, think, I, I've got to make some more room here. I've got to clear these out. And the current fad uh, online is a, is a person who gets people to tidy up by getting rid of everything that doesn't bring them joy. And I look at each book and I say, I remember when I read this one. I remember when I was in grad school and I could barely afford this book. And I remember bought this book at Dan's shop. And I remember this book from the museum. And, and every darn one of these books brings me a certain amount of joy. I can't get rid of them. Yeah, well, because it becomes personal. Books are personal to us who are readers and collectors. And each one has its own story to us. And just so we uh, don't uh, project that onto monetary value and when we try to sell them. Uh, they're emotional to us. We enjoy them. But it doesn't always mean it's going to be big on the market. So one does collect books or whatever for, to feed one's own soul. Exactly. And not to, at the end, make money off of them. No, that makes perfect sense. Not, not, it's not an investment if you don't love it. Well, Dan, we are out of time, unfortunately. It is always a pleasure talking with you. I can't wait to get up to Chicago, visit my daughter, and come in and see how you guys are doing at, uh, let me get the address again, 8, uh, 824, 824 with Superior. Superior. Yes. Uh, visitors, go see it. Go look at the website, alincolnbookshop.com, and uh, uh, you will not be sorry you did. Your wallet will be, but you will not be. So, Dan, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jerry. I've enjoyed it as always. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.